Thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. We are excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. It is our prayer that it is a blessing to you. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the message. First, we would love to connect with you. You can find us on Facebook at New Grace BC. Also, be sure to check out our website, reachingroanoke.com. There, you can find out more about who we are and where we are going as a church. Again, thank you for checking out our sermon here at New Grace. Please let us know of any questions you may have or any way that we can help you and your family. Enjoy the message. We, uh, as a society, just had the honor of celebrating Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day, of course, is the number one made-up holiday to get money out of husbands and to make us feel bad if we don't. But even if it is a made-up holiday, if you have a significant other, you have to get them something. You know, if husbands, if your wife says, honey, don't get me anything for Valentine's Day, it's a trap. She's lying. You cannot get her anything, and she'll be like, why didn't you give me anything? You said not to get me anything. But you have to get them something. There was one Valentine's Day. <clears throat> it was eight years ago. We had just started the church in October. And so we're like four months into this thing. And I'm knocking doors eight hours a day and trying to get sermons ready. And I'm exhausted. And April's dealing with the kids at home. And uh, we have no money. We are just as broke as broke can be. And so Valentine's came. And she said, hey, don't get me anything. And I didn't because I had no money. And she was okay with that. But the next day, I did what every good thrifty person does. I went to Kroger, and I got the discount Valentine stuff. And so I go, and I, I pick out gifts for everybody, and I, I bring them home, and April's in the house, and she's upstairs, and where we lived in, uh, I, pull, I, I pulled in the driveway. She was upstairs in our bedroom. She could see me coming in. And so she heard me pull in. She looked out the window. She saw me coming in with all these gifts, and she was so excited that I, I thought of her, and so I come in, and I give all the gifts to all the kids, and I'd forgotten to get her anything. Yes. That was a bad Valentine's Day. I have not forgotten that Valentine's Day since then because she won't let me. This year, she's like, we were talking, and she's like, are you going to get me anything for Valentine's Day, or are you going to do like you did that one time and get everybody else something and not me? And so since then, I've gotten the kids nothing. The kids get nothing from me. Like, they'll get nothing, but April will. And so, I, and again, I, used, I said, you said not to get you anything, but I wanted to get the kids something. Did not go well. Don't ever do that. Now, some people, they put a lot of thought and a lot of effort and a lot of money into getting their loved one, that special person, the perfect gift for Valentine's Day. It's estimated that this year, Americans spent, will spend $24.7 billion on Valentine's Day. Billion! On gifts, on flowers, on cards, on dinners, on trips, on jewelry. $24.7 billion. That is more than the gross domestic product of Nepal and the 100 countries below it to put together. More money than 100 countries will make in a year we spend on Valentine's Day. Now you know why Hallmark made up this stupid holiday. 
so they can make $24.7 billion. That is an insane amount of money to spend in one day. If you were to count $24.7 billion, $1 at a time, it would take you 785 years to get it done. That is a lot of money. And the purpose of Valentine's Day, supposedly, now we all know the purpose is to get money out of us. We know that. But the supposed purpose is to celebrate the love between two people. But as believers, there is a greater love that we get to celebrate. And that is the love of God for us. The Bible says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, God loved us so much that he didn't send flowers. God loved us so much that he didn't send chocolate. God loved us so much that he didn't give us jewelry. He loved us so much that he gave us his son. And he did that so that we could have eternal life, so we could have fellowship with him, so we could know him, so we could spend time with him, so we could walk with him. 2,000 years ago, God gave the greatest expression of love when he sent his son to live for us, to die on the cross for us, and to rise again to redeem us to God the Father. That is the greatest gift of love that has ever been given. So as we look at this perfect gift, this perfect expression of love, I want to look at the book of Galatians. So look in Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse number 4. The Bible says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That is an incredible passage of Scripture that describes the most incredible display of love the world has ever seen. So this evening, as we, as we observe the Lord's Supper and prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper, I want to give three reasons that Jesus is God's perfect gift of love. Number one, he came at the perfect time. Look again at verse number four. But when the fullness of time was come. The word fullness there in the Greek is the Greek word pleroma. It means to complete, to be full. It is used in the Bible to describe a woman who is pregnant and ready to have her baby. Any of you mothers remember that feeling? Ashlyn, you're the most recent victim of that thing. Where, you know, the women, of course, everyone with April Olivares, you, you get the first trimester, of course, you're a little, you know, you got that magical glow of sweat because you're vomiting. But, you know, you're just excited for what's coming and you love what's coming. Then the second trimester, you start to get your belly and it starts to feel pretty, and people start talking about how great you are and how wonderful you look. And every, you start feeling the baby moving, it's so exciting. But then the third trimester comes and about, about you know, that, that eight and a half month, you're like, Get this thing out of me. I am done. I want it done now. I mean, April experienced that with all three of them. She got to a point where she loved it, and then she got to a point she's like, I hate this, and you did this to me. I hate you. 
And that's what that word plerama is used to describe. It's used in Luke chapter 2 verse 6. It says, and, it, and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. The word accomplished there is the Greek word pleb plerama. Same root word that means fullness, but it means she had reached the fullness of her pregnancy. She was ready to deliver. God sent the gift of Jesus, the greatest display of love at the perfect time when everything was ready for Jesus to come. From Genesis 1, the universe had been expecting God's plan of redemption. Of course, God created the world knowing that man would fall. But in Genesis 3, when man fell, he gave the promise of a redeemer. And from that point on, the mankind and the world were just expecting God's plan of redemption, that a Savior would come to redeem mankind. And when Jesus came, it was the fullness of time. Everything was ready for God's display of love to come to man. <clears throat> Donald Guthrie said this. He said, God had prepared the whole world for the coming of his son at this particular time in history. See, God had prepared the world spiritually for his son to come. Since Genesis, God had been revealing himself to man. He never revealed his entire person. He never revealed his entire character. But he revealed pieces of himself to, to, to mankind. He revealed glimpses of his character. We saw glimpses of his character in creation. We see his sovereignty and his power. We see glimpses of his character in the relationship between Abraham and Isaac and his, his love for the son, but his willingness to obey the father. We see glimpses of him in, in Noah and the ark. We see glimpses of him in the story of David and Goliath. We see glimpses throughout the Old Testament that are revealing aspects of his character like a puzzle. We get one piece at a time. We never see the whole thing, but little by little, we get pieces of who God is. And so God was preparing the world spiritually. God gave us the law to prepare the world spiritually. See, the law was not given to show us how to have a relationship with God. It was given to show us the holiness and righteousness of of God. And it was given to show our inability to ever earn a right standing with the Father. God gave the law to show us the aspect of His character, but also to show us our need of a Savior, to show us our need of a Messiah. So God gave the law to prepare spiritually, but God also gave promises to prepare the world spiritually. One of those promises is found in Isaiah chapter 7, written 700 years before the birth of Christ. It says this, it says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us. 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years before this virgin would conceive and give birth to the child that would be God, God gave us this promise. He prepared the world spiritually. But He also prepared the world socially and relationally to receive the gift of His Son. Jesus was born at a time in history 
where for the first time ever, there was a global connectedness. Now, in our culture today, our time today, the, the world is connected like never before. With Facebook and Internet and TV and all these things, you can, you can connect to someone on the other side of the world and talk to them through your phone or via Facebook or email. And we are connected like never before. But until the time of Jesus, the world had never really been that connected The different cultures were kind of spread out and didn't really get to communicate with each other, get to see each other, get to interact with each other. But at this time, the world was connected like never before. Uh, The Roman Empire had built an infrastructure that connected the world like never before. Because of the Roman Empire, there was a common language used in most of the world. Most of the world spoke the same language or at least knew the the Greco-Roman language. They knew how to communicate. So you could talk to someone from another country because you both spoke the same language. There had never been a time where that had happened. Uh, It also had an infrastructure. The Roman Empire had connected the world with an infrastructure like never before. Of course, we all know the the phrase, the Romans' road of salvation, but the Romans' road was a a system of roads and infrastructures that Rome had, had built from Rome all the way throughout their empire that connected the world physically like never before. So you could travel to places that had been inaccessible. You could get on ships and go to faraway lands that you'd never heard about, and the world was connected by infrastructure like never before. But there was also something that was known as the Peace of Rome. After Rome had conquered basically the known world, there was a decades-long time of peace. The world had never seen that where no one was fighting. They were living together and thriving together and getting along together. And the global there was this global connectedness like the world had never seen. And we can talk about how Rome did it, but we know that it was God preparing the way for the world to receive the gift of His love. But there was also, during this time, there was a growing hunger for truth. In society, because of all this connectedness, people were were learning about different religions and different beliefs and different gods that they'd never heard of, and it kind of made them question what they believed and what they understood. So the world was was hungry for truth. John Stott, he's a historian and theologian. He said this: at the same time, the, the time of Jesus' birth, at the same time, the old mythological gods of Greece and Rome were losing their hold on the common people so that the hearts and the minds of men everywhere were hungry for a religion that was real and satisfying. So at this moment in time, at this moment in human history, when the world was connected, when the world was looking for something true and significant and lasting, God sent His Son. He sent His gift of love at the perfect time. He sent his perfect gift of love at the perfect time, a time that was picked and prepared by our Heavenly Father. But not only to come in the perfect time, he also came in the perfect way. In the book of, in this phrase, in this uh, passage in Galatians, 
Paul uses three different phrases to describe the coming of Jesus into the world that are important. And these three phrases, they were necessary for Christ to come in the perfect way. Here's the first phrase. God sent forth his son. So here's the, God sent forth his son. That's in verse 4 again. Say that with me. God sent forth his son. That tells us that Jesus came as 100% God. You say, where do you see that, preacher? Give me a minute. All right? The phrase sent forth there is from the Greek word ex apostello. We get an English word from that root word apostello. It's the word apostle. The word apostle literally means one sent out on a mission. It was to describe who they were. The apostles were people who were sent out by God on a mission for God. And so that's, that's what the, the word apostello means. But this word, ex apostello, it comes from the same root word, but it's got that, that prefix ex on there. That prefix means out of. So what this word means is sent out of on a mission. That means God sent forth his son out of somewhere. That raises a question. Out of where? Where did Jesus come from? The birth, here's what you got to understand. The birth of Jesus was not the beginning of Jesus. He was not a man. His birthday was not his beginning. His father sent his son out of eternity. See, Jesus is not a man that became God. He is God that became a man. Jesus always has been and always will be God. We see that in John's Gospel. Every other gospel begins the gospel story with the birth of Christ. They give us three different kind of views of how Jesus was born. But John begins his gospel differently. Look how John begins his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. In the beginning, same way Genesis starts. Genesis, in the beginning, God created everything. John, in the beginning, was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So John begins his gospel the same way as Genesis does. Genesis begins by telling us how the beginning began. John tells us who was there when it all began. When it all started, he says, the Word who was God Was there in the beginning, God spoke everything into existence. And John says, in the beginning, when God spoke, there was the Word. Now, the Word was a term that John used to describe to the Greeks the person of Jesus Christ. He is the Word. And John says, when the beginning began, Jesus already was. When God God created everything, Jesus was already God. In eternity's past, Jesus is God. He always has been and he always will be God. That's when Moses met with God and said, Who do I tell has sent me? He said, You tell them the I am 
has sent you. He didn't say, tell him I was, or I will be, or I might be. He says, I am. It speaks of his eternal existence. That means you can go back as far as you want to in history, and you know what you're going to find? You're going to find God. Before the first second ever ticked off of time's clock, there was God. There was Jesus. Before the first ray of sunshine crested the horizon, there was Jesus. Before there was a bird, before there was air, before there was the earth, before there was anything, there was Jesus. Now there's a lot of people in our culture, in our society, even in church, that give Jesus a place of prominence. But the Bible gives Jesus a place of preeminence. He's not just a teacher. He's not a good person. He's not a prophet. He's not a man who became God. He is God who became man. He is the infinite one that became finite. He is the eternal one that stepped into eternity. He is the invisible one that became visible. He's the creator that became part of his creation. And here's the second, so the first phrase, he was, God sent forth his son. Here's the second phrase, made of woman. Not only was God, not only was Jesus 100% God, but he came as 100% man. How can he be 100% God and 100% man? Because he's God. So I don't understand that. It's because you're not God. You can't do it because you're not God. But he is. So he can. He came as 100% man. God came into the world like every single one of us. Everyone here has one thing in common. We were born of a woman. Any of y'all not born of a woman? Always couple. Always one or two in the audience, and it's usually them two. God came, born of a woman, just like us. Look back at John 1. Again, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then skip down to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You know, we, we can't wrap our minds around that. God, who existed before the beginning began. God, who created everything, who always has been and always will be, at some point in time, God became a man. He dwelt among us. The word dwelt there means to pitch your tent. It means God became one of us. He lived his life. He slept like we sleep. He ate like we ate. Well, probably not like we eat, but he ate like they did in his time. He laughed. He cried. He had heartbreak. He was betrayed. He had friends. He had people that turned their back on him. He, he experienced pain. God was just like us. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. God, Jesus never stopped being God. He just laid aside the privilege of his Godhead. He laid aside the privileges of being God. But there's a third phrase. Jesus got the perfect time. God sent forth a son, born of woman, made under the law. 
That phrase tells us that God, that Jesus, <coughs> was 100% God. He became 100% man, and he, and he lived as 100% righteous. Jesus did, in relationship to the law, he did what we couldn't do. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. That means every thou shalt, he shouted. Every thou shalt not, he shout nodded. He did everything that was quite of the law. He avoided everything that was forbidden from the law. He did what we could never do. He was tempted like a man, but didn't sin like God. Hebrews 4.15 says he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. John Stott said this, he goes, throughout his life he submitted to all the requirements of the law. He succeeded where all others before and since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. Now, why does all this matter? Why does it matter that he was 100% God who came as 100% man and man and lived 100% righteous? Because in order for him to come in God's perfect way, he needed to be 100% God. He needed to be 100% man and he needed to be 100% righteous. We needed him to be God because his, his sacrifice needed to be eternal. No finite being could offer a sacrifice to atone for eternal sin. So we needed him to be God. We needed him to be man because only a man could atone for the sins of humanity. But we also needed him to be righteous. In order for his, his sacrifice to be accepted by a holy God, a holy, righteous sacrifice had to be given. And so God, Jesus, is God's perfect gift of love, came at the perfect time, came in the perfect way, but thirdly, he came to demonstrate God's perfect love. Look at verse 5. It says, for we, nope, wrong, wrong chapter, it says, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. The, 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 word, the, the verse there starts with the, the word to. That is the Greek word henna. It means so that or that in order that. So what Paul is about to say, he's, he says, God came in the fullness of time. He came uh, at the perfect time in the perfect way, born of a man, born of a woman, sin of God, so that. Which means here's the reason Jesus came in the fullness of time, born of a woman, sinned by God. He came so that he would redeem those who were under the law and we could receive the adoption of sons. Now the word redeem isn't a word we really understand how they used it in this time. We use the word redeem like about a coupon. Do you have any coupons to redeem or a, a code to redeem uh, to get a, a discount on, on the internet? And so it's something that we use to get a, get a discount or get something. So to us the word redeem means to use. But in Paul's day... Slavery was very widespread. Many historians uh, say that over two-thirds of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. People who were in slavery. Now, some of them were in slavery because they were paying off a debt. Some of them were in slavery because they, they chose to be because it was the only way to provide for their families. It was vastly different than what we think of slavery, but it's still slavery. 
it's still not good. And so slavery was a, a huge issue. And in those days, redeem was something that was used to indicate that you would buy yourself or you would buy someone else out of slavery. The word redeem means to recover from the power of another by way of ransom. It means to buy back for a price. So you or a friend or a relative, they could go to whoever the master was. And they could pay a certain price to redeem that person out of the bondage of slavery. And when the price of redemption was paid, the slave was set free. And so Paul used this language to show and to remind us that every single one of us were born in bondage to sin. Because of sin, we were held captive. Because of sin, we were dominated by our flesh. Because of this, we were, because we were slaves, we were doomed to be destroyed by sin. And the law taught us that there was nothing we could do to redeem ourselves from sin. We couldn't be set free from sin's power. We couldn't be set free from sin's penalty. And we could never be set free from sin's presence on our own. We needed someone who could pay a price to redeem us. And that's exactly what Jesus did. As 100% God, as 100% man, and 100% righteous, He offered His body on the cross and He shed His blood and took our sin on Himself to pay our sin debt. He died for us and He rose again to show that God had accepted His sacrifice as payment or as redemption from our sin. And so when we put our faith and our trust in Him, we are set free. We experience redemption from sin's power. We are ultimately set free from sin's penalty of eternity. Eternity in hell, separated from God, and in heaven will eventually be set free from sin's presence. But he closes by saying he didn't just redeem us, he also came so we could experience the adoption of sons. Adoption's a beautiful word. Adoption means to become part of a family that we didn't belong to originally. Because of our sin, because of my sin, because of your sin, we could not have a relationship with God. We were separated from God. We were not children of God. We were children of wrath and enemies of God. We didn't belong to Him. We belonged to sin. But Jesus purchased our redemption and He set us free but he went further and he adopted us into his family. Now that means that the, the king of kings is now my father. The Lord of lords is now my father. I am now in the family of the creator. I am a child of God. I am in his family. It, we are so much part of his family. Look at verse number 6. He says, And because ye are sons, God has sent forth his spirit, and his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Paul says, you are so much a child of God that you can cry out, Abba, Father. That is a term of intimacy. It's, it's our, the, only, the only thing that even comes close to describing what it means is the word daddy. He says, God's 
your daddy. See, anybody, any man can be a father. Any man can help create children and be a father. But not everyone's a daddy. Not everyone has that intimacy and that love and that protection. And Paul says, you are so much a child of God that you can cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. He becomes our Father, but God's gift, like all gifts, has to be received. Has to be accepted. What I said is true. We are God's Father. We are redeemed, but only those who have accepted the gift of God. Look at what the Bible says in John 1.12. But as many as received him to them, to who? To those who received him. To those who accepted the gift of redemption. To those who accepted his death, burial, and resurrection as payment for their sins. To those to as many as received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Redemption is available to everybody. But we have to receive it. We have to accept it. So how do we receive him? By faith. Later on in the book of Galatians it says, For by grace are you saved. Through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. See, there is nothing you have to do, but there's nothing you can do to earn God's redemption. There's nothing you have to do, but there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. There's nothing you have to do, but there's nothing you can do to earn his salvation. It is a free gift we accept by faith in him. Now, it sounds simple, but it is easy for us because God did all the work. When Jesus said it is finished, what he meant was everything that has to be done for your redemption, for your salvation is done. All you have to do is trust me. All you have to do is realize that you were born an enemy of God, condemned and doomed to hell. Understand that there was nothing you could do to, to get away from that. Your own strength, your own ability, your own good works. You, you well, I come to church and I, I do good things and I try to help people. doesn't matter. No matter how good you were, you could never earn the redemption of God. That's what the law taught us. So realize you're a sinner, condemned and doomed to hell. But God loved you so much that he sent his own son, 100% God, 100% man, 100% righteous, to live a perfect life, to do what you could never do. To completely fulfill the law, but then die in your place for your sins. He shed his blood for you. He died for you. He was buried for you and he rose again for you. And all we have to do is say, God, I believe all that. And I put my faith and my trust in what you did on the cross to save me from sin. He came as 100% God, as 100% man and 100% righteous, and he died and rose again so we could receive freedom, so we could receive redemption, so we could receive adoption. So here, before we go to the Lord's Supper, here's a question for you. Have you ever received God's gift of salvation? Not have you ever joined a church, not have you ever been baptized, 
Not have you ever done enough good works. Have you ever put your faith and trust 100% in what God did for you on the cross? Have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith in Jesus and received God's gift of love? If not, I pray, and we all that have accepted Christ, we pray and encourage you to take care of that tonight. We'll have a few moments of prayer before we, we get into the Lord's Supper. And I encourage you to, to find one of the pastors, me or Daryl or anyone else. We have women that can talk to women or men that can talk to men. And we can show you from the Bible, not how you can earn your way or, or, sir, or do good enough to get there, but how you can know for sure that you put your faith in God and you have a home in heaven and you're a child of the King. If you've never done that, you're not sure of that, do it tonight. The Bible says today is a day of salvation. And look, I know what you're thinking. Preacher, you're talking to the Sunday night crowd. We're all saved. I know most of us think we are. My biggest fear as a pastor is I'll stand before God and see people I helped shepherd, people I preached to and pastored for years, cast into hell because they never truly accepted Christ as their Savior. And it's my job to make sure they have. So I plead, search your heart. If you've never done that, do that tonight. And I know sometimes we think, well, I've been coming here for years, and if I were to do that, people would, would think less of me. I guarantee you, everyone would rejoice with you, would praise God with you. So if you've never done that, do that tonight. If you don't, don't observe the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is only for God's children. It's for those who have been redeemed. But maybe you're here and you have been redeemed. When we take a few moments and we pray, you need to make sure your heart is ready to receive the Lord's Supper. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11, it says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, and drinketh, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Here's what Paul's saying. Before we take the Lord's Supper, you need to examine your heart and make sure that you're on good terms with God. You're his child. Your sins are forgiven. But maybe you've got something between you and God. You need to confess some sin and get right with God. Maybe you've got a problem with another church member. You need to get right with them before you take the Lord's Supper. So we're going to take a few moments. Miss Trudy's going to come to the piano. She's going to pray. She's going to play. And we're going to, we're going to stand and we're going to pray. And if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, I encourage you tonight, find someone to take care of that. If you're here and you are saved, I encourage you to examine your heart and make sure that you are on right terms with God and right terms with every other believer. If there's something wrong, get it right. Let's all stand together.